Chapter Seventeen of the Mountain Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Herndon Bell. The Mountain Girl by Payne Erskine. Chapter Seventeen, in which David Thring meets an enemy. The next day David gave his attention to the letters which he found awaiting him. One was from Dr. Hoyle in Canada. He had but just returned from a visit to England, and it was full of news of David's family there. "'Your two cousins and your brother are gone with their regiments to South Africa,' he wrote. "'They are jubilant to be called to active service, as they ought to be, but your mother is heartbroken over their departure. You stay where you are, my boy. She is glad enough to have you out of England now, and far from the temptation which besets youth in times of war. It has already caused a serious bloodletting for old England. I have grave doubts about this contention. In these days there ought to be a way of preventing such disaster. Write to your mother and comfort her heart. She needs it. I was careful not to betray to her what your condition has been, as I discovered you had not done so. Hold fast and fight for health, and be content. Your recuperative power is good. David was filled with contrition as he opened his mother's letter, which was several weeks old and had come by way of Canada, since she did not know he had gone south. For some time he had sent home only casual notes, partly to save her anxiety and partly because writing was irksome to him unless he had something particularly pleasant to tell her. His plans and actions had been so much discussed at home, and he had been considered so censurably odd, so different from his relatives and friends in his opinions, and so impossible of comprehension, which branded him in his own circle at being quite at fault, that he had long ago abandoned an effort to make himself understood by them, and had retired behind his mask of reserve and silence, to pursue his own course undisturbed. Thus, at best, an occasional perfunctory letter that all was well with him was the sum total of news they received. Thring had no money anxieties for his family. The needs of his mother and his sister, not yet of age, were amply provided for by a moderate annuity, while his brother had his position in the army and help from his uncle besides. For himself, he had saved enough with his simple tastes and much hard work to tide him over this period of rest. David sat now and turned his mother's letter over and over. He read and re-read it. It was very sad. Her splendid boys both gone from her, one possibly never to return. Neither of them married and with no hope of grandchildren to solace her declining years. Stay where you are, David, she wrote. Dr. Hoyle tells us you are doing well. Don't, oh, don't enter the army. One son I have surrendered to my country service. Let me feel that I still have one on whom I may depend to care for Laura and me in the years to come. We do not need you now, but some day we may. David's quandary was how to give her as much of his confidence as filial duty required without betraying himself so far as to arouse the antagonistic comment of her immediate circle upon his course. 
At last he found a way. Telling her he did not know how soon he might return to Canada, he requested her to continue to address him there. He then filled his letter with loving thoughts for her and Laura, and a humorous description of what he had seen and experienced in the States and the country about him, all so foreign and utterly strange to her, as to be equal to a small manuscript romance. It was a cleverly written letter, so hiding the vital matters of his soul, which he could not reveal even to the most loving scrutiny, that all her motherly intuition failed to read between the lines. The humorous portions she gave to the rector's wife, her most intimate friend, and the dear son's love expressed therein she treasured in her heart and was comforted. Then David rode away up the mountain without descending to his little farm. He craved to get far into the very heart of the wildest parts, for with the letters the old conventional and stereotyped ideals seemed to have intruded into his cabin. He passed the home of Hope Ballou and stopped there to see that all was well with them. The rose vine covering the porch roof was filled with pink blossoms, hundreds of them swinging out over his head. The air was sweet with the odor of honeysuckle. The old locust tree would soon be alive with bees, for it was already budded. He took the baby in his arms and saw that its cheeks were growing round and plump, and that the young mother looked well and happy, and he was glad. Take good care of them, Hoke. They are worth it he said to the young father, as he passed him coming in from the field. "'I will that,' said the man. "'Can you tell me how to reach a place called Wildcat Hole? I have a fancy to do a little exploring.' "'Well, it's sort of roundabout. I don't guess you can find it easy.' The man spat, as if reluctant to give the information asked, which only stimulated David all the more to find the spot. Keep right on this way, do I? Yes. You keep on for a spell, and then you turn to the right and follow the stream for a spell, and you keep on following it off and on till you get there. You'll know it when you do get there. But the still's all broke up. Oh, I don't care a rap about the still. Nah, I reckon not. Better light and have dinner before you go on. Azalee, keep the doctor dinner. I'm coming in a minute, he called to his wife, who stood smiling in the doorway. David willingly accepted the proffered hospitality, as he had often done before, knowing it would be well after nightfall ere he could return to his cabin, and rode back to the house. While Azalea prepared dinner, Hoke sat in the open door and held his baby and smoked. David took a splint-bottomed chair out on the porch and smoked with him watching pleasantly the pride of the young father, who allowed the tiny fist to close tightly around his great work-roughened finger. Look at there now. See that hand? He ain't bigger'n a bumblebee, and see how he can hang on. Yes, said David, absently regarding them. He's a fine boy. He sure is. They ain't no finer in this mountain. Azalea came and looked down over her husband's shoulder. "'Don't do that away, Hulk. You'll wake him up, bobbing his arm up and down like you a doing. Hulk, he's that proud you can't touch him.' "'You hear that, Doc? Azalea, she's that sot on him, 
she'd like to turn me out in the house for just looking at him she allows he'll grow up a preacher on account of the way he can holler and thrash with his fist but i tell her it ain't nothing but madness and devilment it gets in him with a mother's superior smile playing about her lips she glanced understandingly at david and went on with her cooking as they came into the table she called david's attention to a low box set on rockers and taking the baby from her husband's arms carefully placed him still asleep in the quaint nest hoke made that hisself she said with pride and cassandry she made that kiver thring touched the cover reverently bending over it and left the cradle rocking as he sat down at hoke's side and began to put fresh butter between his hot biscuit as he had learned to do his mother would have flung up her hands in horror had she seen him doing this or could she have known how many such he had devoured since coming to recuperate in these mountain wilds the home was very bare and simple but sweet and clean and love was in it to sit there for a while with the childlike young couple enjoying their home and their baby and the hospitality generously offered according to their ability warmed david's heart and he rode away happier than he came with mind absorbed and idle rein he allowed his horse to stray as he would while his thoughts and memory played strange tricks presenting contrasting pictures to his inward vision now it was his mother reading by the evening lamp carelessly scanning a late magazine only half interested her white hair arranged in shining puffs high on her head and soft lace old lace falling from open sleeves over her shapely arms and laura red-cheeked and plump curled feet and all in a great lounging chair poring over a novel and yawning now and then her dark hair carelessly tied with straight straying ends hanging about her face as he had many a time seen her after playing a game of hockey with her active romping friends his mother and laura were the only ones at home now since the big elder brother was gone of course they would miss him and be sad sometimes but laura would enjoy life as much as ever and keep the home bright with youth even as he thought of them the room faded and his own cabin appeared as he had seen it the day before through the open window with cassandra moving about in her quiet gliding way haloed with light again he could see the picture of another room all white and gold with slight french chairs and tables and couches and cushions and candelabra of quivering crystals with pale green walls and gold frame paintings and a great three-cornered piano massive and dark where a slight fair girl sat idly playing tinkling music in keeping with herself and the room but quite out of keeping with the splendid instrument he saw people all about her chatting laughing sipping tea and eating thin bread and butter he saw as if from a distance another man himself in that room standing near the piano to turn her music while the tinkling runs and glib expressionless trills wove in and out a ceaseless nothing she spent years learning to do that he thought and any amount of money oh well she had it to spend and of what else were they capable those hands he could see them fluttering carelessly over the keys pink slender pretty and then he saw other hands somewhat work-worn not small nor yet too large but white and shapely 
Ah, of what were they not capable? And the other girl, in coarse white homespun, seated before the fire in Hope Baloo's cabin, holding in her arms the small bundle, and her smile so rare and fleeting. He saw again the handsome, sullen youth in Bishop Tower's garden, regarding him over the hedge with narrowed eyes, and his whole nature rebelled and cried out as before, What a waste! Why should he allow it to go on? He must thrash this thing out once for all before he returned to his cabin, the right and the wrong of the case, before he should see her again, while as yet he could be engineer of his own forces, and hold his hand on the throttle to guide him safely and wisely. Could he succeed in influencing her to set her young lover's claims one side? But in his heart he knew if such a thing were possible she would not be herself. She would be another being, and his love for her would cease. No. He must see her but little, and let the tragedy go on even as the bishop had said go on as if he had never known her. As soon as possible he must return and take up his work where he could not see the slow wreck of her life. A heavy dread settled down upon him, and he rode on with bowed head until his horse stumbled and thus roused him from his reverie. To what wild spot had the animal brought him? David lifted his head and looked about him and it was as if he had been caught up and dropped in an enchanted wood. The horse had climbed among great boulders and paused beneath an enormous overhanging rock. He heard off at one side the rushing sound of a mountain stream and judged he was near the head of Lone Pine Creek. But, oh, the wilderness of the spot, and the beauty of it, and the lonely charm! He tied his horse to a lithe limb that swung above his head, and dismounting, clambered on towards the rushing water. The place was so screened in as to leave no vista anywhere, hiding the mountains on all sides. Light green foliage overhead, where branches thickly interlaced from great trees growing out of the bank above, made a cool, lucent shadowiness all around him. There was a delicious odor of sweet shrub in the air, and the fruity fragrance of the dark, wild, wake robin underfoot the tremendous rocks were covered with the most exquisite forms of lichen in all their varied shades of richness and delicacy he began carefully removing portions here and there to examine under his microscope when he noticed almost crushed under his foot a pale purple orchid like the one cassandra had placed on his table always thinking of her he stooped suddenly to lift the frail thing and at the instant a rifle-shot rang out in the still air, and a bullet meant for his heart cut across his shoulders like a trail of fire, and flattened itself on the rock where he had been at work. At the same moment, with a bound of tiger-like ferocity and swiftness, one leaped toward him from a near mass of laurel, and he found himself grappling for life or death with the man who fired the shot. Not a word was spoken the quick short breathing and scuffling of feet among the leaves and the snapping of dead twigs underfoot were the only sounds had the youth been a trained wrestler david would have known what to expect and would have been able to use method in his defence as it was he had to deal with an enraged creature who fought with the desperate instinct of an antagonist who fights to the death he knew that the odds were against him 
and felt rising within him a wild determination to win the combat, and thinking only of Cassandra, to settle thus the vexed question, to fight with the blind passion and the primitive right of the strongest to win his mate. He gathered all his strength, his good English metal and nerve, and grappled with a grip of steel. This way and that, twisting, turning, stumbling on the uneven ground, with set teeth and faces drawn and fierce, they struggled. And all the time the light tweed coat on David's back showed a deeper stain from his heart's blood, and his face grew paler and his breath shorter. Yet a joy leaped within him. It was thus he might save her, either to win her or to die for her, for should Frail kill him, she would turn from him in hopeless horror, and David, even in dying, would save her. Suddenly the battle ended. Thring's foot turned on a rounded stone, causing him to lose his foothold. At the same instant, with terrible forward impetus, Frail closed with him, bending him backward, until his head struck the lichen-covered rock. The purple orchid was bruised beneath him, and its color deepened with his blood. Then Frail rose, and looked down upon the pallid, upturned face and inert body which lay as he had crushed it down. As he stood thus, a white figure, bareheaded and alone, came swiftly through the wall of laurel which hid them, and pausing terror-stricken in the open space, looked from one to the other. For an instant Cassandra waited thus, as if she too were struck dead where she stood. Then she looked no more on the fallen man, but only at Frail, with eyes immovable and yet withdrawn, as if she were searching in her own soul for a thing to do, while her heart stood still and her throat closed. Those great gray eyes, with the green sea depths in them, began to glow with a cruel light, as if she too could kill as if they were drawing slowly from the deep well of her being, as it were, a sword from its scabbard wherewith to cut him through the heart. Her hand stole to her throat and pressed hard. Then she lifted it high above her head and held it, as if in an instant more one might see the invisible sword flash forth and strike him. Frail cried out then, Don't! Don't curse me, Cass! and lifted his arm to shield his face, while great beads of moisture stood out on his face. "'It's not for me to curse, Frail. Her voice was low and clear. "'Curses come from hell, like what you've been carrying in your heart that made you do this.' Her voice grew louder, and her hand trembled and shut, as if it grasped something. "'I take it back, back from God, the promise I gave you there by the fall.' Then looking up, her voice grew low again, though still distinct. I take that promise back forever, O oh God. Her hand dropped. The cruel light died slowly out of her eyes, and she turned and knelt by the prostrate man, and began pulling open his coat. Frail took one step toward her. Cass, he said with shaking voice, I'll help you. Her hands clenched into David's coat as she held it. Go back! Don't you touch even his least finger, she cried, looking up at him from where she knelt, like a creature hurt to the heart, defending its own. You've done your work. Take your face where I never can see it again. He stood still and looked down on her. 
she turned again to David, and thrusting her hand into his bosom, drew it forth with blood upon it. I say to you, Frale, she cried, holding it toward him, quivering with the ferocity she could no longer restrain. Leave here, or with this blood on my hand, I'll call all hell to curse you. Frale turned with bowed head and left her there. End of chapter 17